0: I would like to introduce our friend, a friend of the Solomon Foundation. His name is Michael, and he's a missionary in Africa with A World Aware. Uh, So join me in welcoming him. And Michael, if you could just uh, lead us off in this time by telling us a bit about yourself and and what it is that that you're doing.
1: Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, Michael Kalamia, again, the organization is A World Aware. Um, hoping that the world becomes aware that you can make a difference and you, in fact, cannot fulfill the Great Commission unless you do. Um, very much believe that. And in the 18 years I've been in South Africa, uh, we have done our best to, to try and ensure that that happens. Uh, the organization was not something that I had planned to do. I had not planned to come to the mission field. In fact, I had never planned to come to Africa but I did with my son-in-law uh, 18 and a half years ago when he was planning on coming here as a missionary with my daughter, and uh, he came for visits initially my daughter could not join on because she was seven months pregnant at the time, and they had a very fast time schedule for when they wanted to be here. So uh, one of the churches that he was requesting that would back them in his venture suggested that he might want to go to South Africa once to see if they really felt like God was calling them here. And uh, because my daughter couldn't travel, I decided I was going to go with my son-in-law so that he would not come back and lie to everybody and tell them what a great place it was when I knew that he would be taking my daughter and my future grandchildren away to a place I would never see them again. So I told my son-in-law, I'm going with you to make sure that you come back with the true story. (laughs) Um, Absolutely one of the best times of my life with my son-in-law um, we spent a month here. And in that month, we had our own personal debriefing each night about the things that we'd done, the things that we'd experienced. And I was trying to do it from the perspective of what my daughter would see here, what she would have to adapt to in the life here and so forth. And of course, my son-in-law was doing this to find out the finances and the economics of what it would take, as well as the ministry opportunities that he would have. Um, short part of the story is Uh, They have not come here as a full-time missionaries, although they have joined me since then and come on mission teams, but uh, about a year after that, I was still so convicted by the things that I saw, I knew that I had to come back, uh, even though I swore I was not going to ever come back to Africa after seeing what I did the first time. Um, But I wanted to see if I could make a difference from afar, but I needed to talk to a few people that I'd seen that first trip. And in that time, I discovered that, yes, there were things I could do from afar, and then after doing that for a couple of years, um, really just got fed up with, with that and decided that it could be much more effective if I spent most of my time on the ground here. And so that's when that became a reality. That's when the world of where it started and became official, 51 c 3 and the equivalency. Uh, we've been working on that in South Africa. It's um, much difficult here the 501c3 in the us what you gain from that is about 20 different agencies here to get the same thing so we're we're there but it just took a long time to do it Let me tell you a little bit about a world where and how we work um, Doug has referred to us as a parachurch organization. Um, I have some very strong feelings about how things, Uh, need to operate in efficient ways. And it's not to say that other people's ideas don't work. They do very well for them. But for my well-being uh, to work mentally here, I didn't want to start to create more problems than what I already saw. And so we came up with these five different points of operation that we have adhered to over the, the last 18 years. And they seem to work pretty well. The first one is that we don't give handouts. We're not an organization that has a feeding scheme or anything like that. And it's not that we don't contribute financially or in other ways with resources to people. It's just that's not our first line of operation. We don't think that you can throw money or resources at a problem and solve it. You need to have people involved in it themselves. And when they have the desire to do that, they invest what they have, and we try to meet them where their exact need is, not before that need shows up. Um, And so the second point of operation is we also don't do things that people can do for themselves. That's really kind of stupid. That's a waste of our time. It's a waste of their time. Besides the fact that it's insulting to people when you come in and say, you know, well, here, let's go paint that building for you, presuming that they don't know what paint is or a brush or how when the two meet together, they actually have a function together. Um, I I just, I can't insult people by doing something like that. So people can do something for themselves. Let them do it. Don't take their their pride away from that workmanship. The third point of operation is that we're not here to do things on a hit and run basis. And uh, what I see from a lot of people that come to do short term mission trips here, and uh, it, it kind of bothers them, is that uh, you get people that want to just have that tick in their missionary belt. I've been there now, I've done that thing. And after a week or two, they go home and it felt like they've done something good. They feel good about themselves but they don't realize how they've left people hanging and the type of relationships that people want to build with them when they come here, just evaporate all of a sudden. So our operations are quite different than that. We are here to build relationships and fellowship with people. And uh, we do that by showing up again and again and again. And uh, once we get in somebody's door, we don't give up. We just keep coming back and putting our foot in. But we're not here to run anybody else's organization. We don't want anybody else to run our organization either. But the ongoing and continuous tells people that they're important to you, and that helps us to do the things that we actually think will make a difference in people's lives. Um, I've always said that you do not have to be a person that steps up and says, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, we're all going to heaven, and Uh, to be that frontline evangelist, there's very strong reasons for doing that in some places, in some situations. But um, what we find is that if you live what you say you believe about God in front of people, they ask you, why are you different? Why do you do this? Why did you come here? And you have ample opportunity to share your personal testimony, which I believe is the most powerful thing that you can do with a person, to share with them from your heart why you believe in Jesus Christ and why you're a fully devoted follower of Him, that, that ignites that spark in people. And then if they like what they see you doing, they want it too. They really want to grab a hold of that. Um, just as a little side note here, I experienced that this last week. I taught a, a class which we sponsor called Biblical Principles of Business, and this was a focus at a crash level or preschool level. Uh, this was a one-week seminar that I did with college kids who are just now graduating from the school systems here, Uh, There were different colleges represented in this course, and they had studied early childhood development, and after the first five minutes, they were surprised that you could actually use the Bible principles to apply towards what you do with children and teaching them in preschool. (laughs) We had a wonderful week. Um, We had a really wonderful week. By the end of that, um, well, I'll carry on speaking about that all night if I I get going, (laughs) Uh, Let me carry on. The fourth point of operation is that we didn't come here to start anything new because we saw there's a lot of people trying to do things already. But because of lack of resources, lack of finances, and lack of education, they're not affected with the ministry that they're trying to perform. And what we wanted to do was to partner with these people and see what their obstacles were. And so my first question is, what are your problems? That's what I want to know about because I'm a pretty good problem solver. And once they tell me what that problem is, the next question is, how do you think it can be solved? After coming to their conclusion on this, they've already identified their own problem. I didn't have to invent something for them. They've identified a possible solution. We'll do a feasibility study with them to see if their solution might actually work. And if we agree that it does, then we go recruiting to see the resources and the personnel that we need to solve that problem they've identified it, they've given the solution for that, and now they're going to be responsible for maintaining the solution on that going forward. And eventually, when they see that it actually does work, they still have the pride of ownership in that. We don't take over anything from anybody. We just continue to encourage them. So uh, our education, empowerment, encouragement comes to light. Huh. So many reasons that's really important. The The least of those things would be just because you feel good when you see that you've done something good for somebody. But one of the more significant ways is that I come from a culture that is extremely different than an African culture. There are 37 different languages in South Africa. One of them, fortunately, I speak fluently. That's English. But 35 of the others are all African languages. One of them is Afrikaans. And in all of those cultures, people have very different ways of viewing life, and their culture will dictate that. We know that, that happens very early on in life. Huh. If I don't understand the culture, how can I figure out what the problems are and what the solutions are? And so you kind of see the point of asking people, what do you think the solution is for your problem? When they come up with that, it's something that they know is going to be understandable and acceptable in the culture that we're working in. So whether we participate in that or not, of course, we always have a choice with that. But there's a much better chance that people understand what you're trying to do when you have it in their own context. So, again, building fellowship with people like that, helping them learn that they can actually resolve their own problems. Once we do that, you know what the natural recourse is, is you know, can you come back again because we have another problem. Yes, we can do that because we're ongoing and continuous. We didn't come here to abandon you. (laughs) We'd like to see you to grow and continue to flourish. But by the way, the problem that you had, I know another crash down the road here, another preschool, and has the same problem that you do. Would you mind coming with me and explaining to them what you found to be a, a good solution for that? And we found that people generally are very excited to do that. They're happy to go with us. And then you start to see an exponential growth. But more than that, you see a fellowship starting to build in a community, and then you start to see much bigger things happen with other organizations that wanna become part of something that they know is actually good and beneficial, not just to themselves, but to the community as well. So that one really excites me. There's much, much more to say about that fourth one, um, but it leads me to the fifth one, uh, points of operation. And that is that we don't create dependencies on ourselves, on our staff, and our organization, right. on our volunteers, mm-hmm. or any of our partners. And if we start to see dependencies, well, you know, the way that happens is I travel back and forth to the US because I have to come back, recruiting teams come over, uh, trying to raise funds, which I'm horrible at. I know that it's a gift that I don't have, but still I come back and keep trying. And when I leave South Africa, if everything stops dead in and tracks until I get back, that's a horrible thing to do to people. So rather they carry on, they're not dependent on me being here. They're not dependent on our organization if we start to see dependencies forming, we know in those first four things we've done something wrong. So we go back and we re-educate and we come to the same synopsis again is that we want to operate with these principles because we know at the end of it that everybody's going to become much stronger. Our emphasis is always scriptural. Every lesson that we teach has a biblical reference to it. And we make analogies of how people can use it in their day-to-day life. And as I told you, people were surprised that you could use scriptures in running the business, it's also true in their personal lives. They don't see how to apply the the hope that we have to live for Jesus every day. And so our, our, our lessons are always uh, encompassing that. Um, I guess I have a lot more to say about that, but I really don't want to spend all of your night doing that. Any questions about our points of operation before I go on?
0: I have a question, Michael, and if anybody else does, they can also follow up behind me and maybe unmute and be prepared to do that. My question is, uh, what do you guys do and what is it like on the ground in South Africa right now?
1: Okay, Um, that's a great leading question to the next part I was gonna talk about. (laughs) Thank you, Renee. Um, What it's like on the ground right now, you might notice I'm dressed a little bit differently than you are. I'm sitting in my house that I rent in Limpopo. And it's currently about uh, 28 degrees outside. There's no insulation in the walls here. There's no heat in the houses here. And so I took my coat on, my scarf, and uh, that's what it's like on the ground right now. (laughs) Not exactly what your question was. Uh, The way we operate is uh, we recruit people to come and work on project teams with us once we've identified a problem that we think we wanna be part of with our partners. And typically with a new partner, when we establish a project that we're going to do with them, uh, from the time that we meet them and begin that investigation, the average time it takes us to actually get to the project is about 18 months, which you might think is a horribly long time, but we're very well planned and thought out in the process that we do and we make sure that uh, there's great communication all along the way. Part of that process involves getting the right resources to do the job. And that means I go to different places in the world and recruit people that have the skill needed to actually take care of the problem that we're trying to resolve. The way that works is I come and I speak at a church and people say, Well, you know, that really sounds interesting. What can I do there? Well, this is what the current projects are that we're working on, and they can be very different because it really depends on what our partners are asking for. We don't invent their problems, remember? So it might be, you know, we need somebody that would come as a brain surgeon today. I'll try to recruit a brain surgeon if that's what we need. Um, But most of the time, the type of projects we do are gardening projects and teaching projects at all different age levels. Our focus has always been, and um, will continue to be, on early childhood development. And let me tell you why. Early childhood development here: a child before they're five years old has no value in a family. Until they hit five years old, when they think is the time they can send the little girls out with a five-gallon bucket to go fetch water for the day. Now the child has value, and they'll keep her around. They'll feed her more regularly. They'll spend a little bit of time with her, and then quickly try to shove her off to school if they can get her enrolled. Um, until that time, kids are just ignored and they're abused and it, it's horrible. Um, there's, there's many sad things that you become aware of right away in the society here as a result of how people treat their children. And I've many times asked people, why do I love your child more than you do? Mm. Um, so one of the, the biggest projects that we have, we work on continually is our early childhood development teaching, training programs where we work with the teachers in these creches to explain to them why it's so important to take good care of this child. This is a generation that you're raising here. What you put in here is gonna be the product that's gonna be redeemed in 20 years. They're gonna be running your country. And right now, um, I can give you some horrible statistics, but one that looms in my mind is that 33% of the people that live in this country have something past a grade school education. That means 66% of the people don't get out of elementary school. And these are your leaders. These are, it, it's uh, quite obvious that the people in charge many times have no clue what they're doing, but they have that position because they knew somebody or they're related to somebody and, and the like. Um, there are, I'm going to read one thing here to you that there are the missing generations here. The mission generation was caused by the AIDS epidemic, and it's basically one whole generation that was erased because HIV is so prevalent here. South Africa vies for the the death rate from HIV uh, for the top honors of that. It goes back and forth between Botswana, Eswatini, and South Africa, and it's horrible. I can tell you that the graveyard here in Fallwater, where I'm at, has tripled in size since I've been here, and it's it's frightening to see how many people you know just all of a sudden disappear. But it's it's the middle generation that's disappearing as a result of that. That's the people that should be raising their own children; they're not there anymore. These are the people that should be contributing to the economy of a country right now, which they're not. Uh, and this leaves uh, an age gap between the child that's in preschool or crash to be raised by her grandma or her great grandma. And um, I think you can probably imagine some of the problems as a result of that. There's also the missing middle, which refers to the students who are too poor to afford to go to any kind of education. And many times they drop out by the time they get to junior high because they realize there's just no hope for them to go any farther uh, going to school here is expensive. There's school fees, there's school uniforms and you know all these restrictions that put on people financially. And just to be in school is, is quite a miracle for some families. But in the town that I live in here in Falva or in Limpopo, uh, well over 40 percent of the kids do not attend school because there's no school for them that's big enough to enroll them in. And to show you just an example of that, uh, in one of the schools here called McColo Elementary School, I visit them, and you walk in and you see three kids sitting in a desk. And you can imagine the kind of education that's happening there when you have a kid sitting on top of a kid on top of a kid. Then there's also going to be a row of kids squatting underneath the chalkboard. Those kids are not actually enrolled, but as long as they stay quiet and out of the way, The education they get is just by listening to what happens in that classroom, but they're not actually enrolled in school. There's no room for them. So early childhood education, you see the the misstep of this very regularly. If you talk to a teenager on on the street here and try to carry on a conversation, you realize they actually can't carry on a conversation because when they're very young, they didn't get the proper nutrition, nor did they get the proper mental stimulation so that they would actually be able to build the brain cells to develop the cognitive ability that they'll need later in life. And to me, that is a crime against children. To me, that is the most severe kind of abuse because you've robbed them of the potential that God created in them. And it's because you just didn't love them enough and you didn't care enough to care about their their well-being. So um, I feel very strongly about this, and people in this community will tell you that. Um, I visit the creches. I visit the schools. I actually teach in the public school system. I teach biblical principles of living course to sixth and seventh graders. And again, this is to try to show them that living is a lifestyle that you choose. And if you choose to do it in a worldly way, you can goof things up pretty good. But if you're looking for a better way, not an easy way, but a better way, Then you can find biblical principles that you can guide yourself with, and by doing that you won't be one of these children that has a child along the way, Um, and you'll be able to set a better standard for yourself and be able to find a way that you can progress better. But before you can get there in that early childhood development, you must have proper nutrition so that you can build the brain and the body. The most common dietary uh, additive here is pop, which is a cornmeal mush, The kids eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's just starch, which, you know, does nothing for the brain. It makes you strong-backed and a lot of stamina. You can go forever, but it doesn't do anything to help you cognitively. So we introduce new diet systems with things that are very readily available. We have gardening projects at the different creches. We build tower gardens, which is a very, uh, very interesting way of gardening, but it's extremely efficient. And when you build a garden, it'll feed a family of eight to 10 people on two liters of water a day. So it's very economical, easy to use. They call it lazy man gardening. But now I know when we build these at the creche, when the teachers buy into this, they have the kids helping them grow the vegetables that they need. And we also have done a moringa test for us in a couple of different creches, which has worked out pretty good. So we're getting good diets There's an awareness in the programs of the people that we teach. What I see from that, because I've been here 18 years now, is these kids come from crash and they go up into elementary school and I teach in those schools. And when I see them in third and fourth grade, they remember that I still met them as a baby. And that awareness right there just excites me to begin with, because I know that they've had good nutrition and they've had good mental stimulation as an infant and a child as well. So they're the ones sitting in the front of the classroom with their hands raising up and challenging the teacher, asking the questions. And I can tell you many of the teachers don't like that here. Uh, Sadly, I can show you that probably well over 50% of the teachers here can't read. And now you wonder how do they build a lesson plan? How do these kids have any kind of a chance at all of accelerating? So we do different things. Like uh, we have a computer lab set up that we have our junior high kids and up are able to come and use in their studies. We also have books in a library that I started here that cover from grade six through matric or the 12th grade that they can come and check out. They can use these to help them in their studies. And we also provide tutoring by hiring professional teachers who have retired to come in and tutor our kids so that they can do better in school. The, the thing that I want to accomplish by doing that is to help these children learn, not to memorize. And that's the standard way of of learning in school here. It's not learning, it's memorizing a specific sentence that comes out of a specific book. And that's what you're going to be asked on the test at the end of the year. And if you memorize that, you get 100% on it. And kids are really good at memorizing here, but the passing rate for any class here has a maximum, or sorry, yeah, the minimum that's needed to pass in subjects since COVID happened, the lockdown, when the kids weren't in school, has been adjusted to 20%. So if you get 20% on a test, you're proficient. Can you imagine that? Imagine your doctor going to medical school and he passed 20% of his exams. Do you want this guy operating on you? No, thank you. Do you want that person doing your taxes? Well, (laughs) but you can see the problem here. So uh, the kids that we work with, uh, the ones that we get into our computer lab, they have to do keyboarding exercises, they have to learn how to type, they have requirements other than that. Um, When they start to show me their results now, these are the kids that are getting 60, 70, 80, and 90% on their tests. And that's really unusual here, trust me, it's really unusual. But it shows me that we do make a difference. The kids want to do better. And when they do that, now they become eligible for tertiary education They become eligible for the government uh, loan system. And, and it's possible that they can get to university and, and go on to do better studies. Um, we, I currently have students that are in college. We, we don't lose track of our kids. We keep up with them. Uh, our college kids sometimes have needs to try to supply them with as well, but they always want to come back and have counseling and somebody they can just talk to with their problems. And we're, of course, here ready to do that. So I know I blanketed across a lot of different areas here, Renee, about things that we do, but trust me, it's only a little bit of the things we do still. But I wanted to emphasize our focus on the crush level kids because this is where it really changes. This is where you can make the difference. If you realize that they used to say that 80% of your cognitive ability for conceptual development happens by the time you're four years old, they've now changed that to three years old. That means 80% of what you believe to actually be true in life happens by the time you're three. That doesn't mean that what you believe to be true is true, and in most cases here that's, that's the way it is. It's not true but it's done, it's locked in, and it's very, very difficult to change that. So let's do a better job of starting these kids out foundationally, putting good truth in them, and helping them to reason and to be able to think the way through things so that they can make better choices in life. And this is what we see from our kids coming through CRASH and going into school, and this is what we'd like to continue. So we have several different things we do for that. One of the biggest things we're working on right now is we've written curriculum that uh, I co-wrote with another teacher here. And, and by the way, I'm not a teacher. I'm just, you know, a guy that tries tries really hard to do things right. Um, we have our own curriculum that we're now in the process of becoming accredited through the curriculum and also accredited in our organization so that we can teach teachers how to take care of babies and how to take care of the kids in the crash. We're fighting our way through the government systems here we have been for years on this um, but we're still peddling the metal on it and we're making very good progress right now we expect that we're going to have quite a bit more done on this within the next few months at that time then we have also other options and avenues that we look forward to to having eventually uh, laws enacted in south africa that kids must go to crash by the time they're at least two years old i'd like to see it sooner than that but that they must use curriculum that actually takes into account good moral structure and things that will challenge the kids to grow and to reason and to think in a way that they can actually use their brain going forward in life. Um, again, all, this, all of this done with the biblical background. And by the way, when I teach in the public school systems here, my text is always a Bible. And when I talk to the teachers, I tell them when I come into your class, I'm going to be teaching from the Bible today. They always tell me that's great. <laughs> Try that in America, right? (laughs) And try it with no credentials at all. I walk in, you know, like I said, I'm just a guy that tries hard, but they allow me to come in because they also see that it makes a difference. The kids know it makes a difference. And the older kids, uh, when we start getting them into high school, we start taking them into leadership training because I think that everybody has the potential to be a leader for somebody. So we take them into leadership training. We talk to them more about their core moral status in life with themselves, help them to make better decisions going forward, to concentrate on their studies, give them the opportunities to do that, take them on a wilderness camps like I just told you we did this last weekend. Um, and I love doing that. I love scaring the kids out in the, in the bush with wild animals. Um, I get a chance to do it again in a couple of weeks here. <laughs> Uh, With the teen program, these are the people now that they're old enough that they can volunteer with us in projects and they go to the crashes with us, we teach them how to write lessons. So they're writing their curriculum that they're teaching. They're energized by that they realize how much the kids get out of it and it excites them and now they're giving back to the community as well. So there's no, uh, no project that we have, that's just a handout or a giveaway, we expect people are going to join us working for themselves, working for the person next to them, and then giving back to the community ultimately. And uh, they become regular volunteers for World Aware.
2: Michael, did I understand, that, did I understand, Michael, that you served with your daughter and son-in-law on the field there? Is that correct?
1: Okay, my, my daughter and my son-in-law are not here. They would be here if they could. Um, and I do believe that they will be full-time Sunday. They have come on project teams with me in the year subsequent to our first visit here. Um, my daughter is our um, operations coordinator on the U.S. side. She's been here several times. Um, always excited when they get to come, and we always plan for the day when they're going to be able to come over and, and jump in full-time as well. They're not quite ready there yet. They have, have things that they're dealing with. Um, the Lord has seen fit to, to give them extra challenges along the way and uh, it's just not possible at this time.
2: The reason I ask, I I was going to ask you what's the greatest pleasure and what's the greatest challenge of uh, serving with your daughter and son-in-law. You're doing it (laughs) but remotely and if you uh, do it uh, on the field undoubtedly the chemistry will will change so it may not be a fair question to ask you right now. I'll ask you in a few years.
1: Great. I'll be ready in a few years for that, I believe. (laughs) Thank you. Any other questions? Anybody?
2: Uh, Yes, Michael. Hey, uh, this is uh, Wes here and really uh, soaking up what you're saying. I'm interested. Just number one, how old are you?
1: (laughs) I'm 71.
2: Fantastic. You're living... Example of what I talk about: being in ministry, going long and strong. You don't uh, you don't act or sound like a seventy one year old. You sound like a guy who is thirty seven. And uh, um, so, bravo! W- would would love to find out just a little bit about your biography. You know, you sp- you teach biblical principles of business, um, biz- uh, b- uh, biblical principles of living. Um, what did you do prior to hitting, hitting the mission field?
1: Um, well, in 71 years, I've been an awful lot. <laughs> uh, my background for the question that you're asking is, by what authority do I teach biblical principles of anything? Uh, I am a, a product of a student, being a student of Guy B. Dunning. Anybody know that gentleman? And Dwayne Dunning at Dakota Bible College, and I graduated from Intermountain Bible College with a Bachelor of Ministries degree. I was in a pulpit ministry for 10 years, and I realized I am not a preacher. I'm just not a preacher. I'm a pretty good teacher, I think, and, and I really enjoy doing that. But I'm not a guy that can stand in a pulpit. Um, it, it just didn't work for me. But in the interim, between the time I left that and after 10 years, uh, I worked in corporate America. I started my own businesses, uh, ran three businesses of my own on biblical principles. And by that authority, I can speak that if you use God's word, I promise you 100 percent, you're going to love business. That doesn't mean every, every day is a peach, but you know God's in control every day. And, and it's just such a blessing to have a business like that um i sold my businesses and i can tell you the people one guy in particular just giving an example uh when i was taking him around and introducing him to my clients and everything at the end of a month i spent with him doing that before he finally took the reins he said i i can't believe that." he said every person i met he said your customers do not like you they love you <laughs> there's a reason for that okay that's living what you say you believe about god in front of people and it shows in your business. It shows in the people, then they want to transact with you. And that's what this guy inherited. So uh, that's my background in business and Bible. Did that answer your question, Wes?
2: Oh, Michael, you, uh, um, you've certainly answered it. Um, I, and I definitely didn't uh, intend to for the question to be, you know, what are your credentials to be doing the thing you're doing? My goodness, any man who at, uh, by my calculation, 53, uh, ups and moves himself to the other side of the world in, uh, to a different continent and uh, just throws yourself into, uh, whatever the needs are, man, you, you, that's your credibility right there. It's the fact that you, you know, have have willingness. We'll serve. We'll figure it out along the way. Um, so uh, yeah, you're you're just an amazing example. Um, what uh, um, what do you do to um, to uh, uh, just um, develop yourself, take care of yourself in the in the clinical world in which I move? We call it self care. Um, you know, many years we thought that, uh, you know, tending to your own needs was selfish. Um, it wasn't until we realized that, you know, when you, when you tend to your own needs, you're, you've got more to be able to give to others. So what, what do you do given the nature of, uh, the immense need, uh, what do you do, uh, in terms of your own life to just maintain your own mental health, your physical health, uh, spiritual health, you, whatever.
1: Okay. Um, that's a great question. Some days, uh, there's, there's down days. I think everybody's aware that happens to everybody. Um, I, I've been very blessed in my life. I have a mentor who's been my mentor for over 40 years. Um, he and I talk very regularly. We know each other inside out, and there's no question if I need him, he's there, and vice versa. Uh, in addition to that, he's my mentor, but I also have somebody that I mentor who's 10 years younger than I am, and he also has somebody 10 years younger than him, and the four of us do gather and and chat and and have that great fellowship together. Uh, In the area that I live in, it's difficult for me because uh, there's the closest English-speaking church is 90 miles away from me, okay? There is a a huge need for a restoration movement church in this community here any volunteers (laughs) we'll Mm -hmm. help you get started (laughs) um but there but there are people here uh in in the past the people that we have recruited some of them have come and said we like what you do there michael um can you help us get started in a mission for what we'd like to do there and yes, of course, we'll do that. That's exactly what our organization wants to key into. Um, one couple came from Oklahoma. They built an orphanage here. Uh, we were with them step by step until they turned that over to other people. And now they're back in the state, still working to raise funds for that orphanage. Um, and, and that's that was marvelous fellowship. They were my neighbors next door until they got their, their own facility and, and started all that. Uh, another gentleman came on a trip with me, told me that he and his wife were planning to go to Costa Rica in their mission field when they retired. And he said after their his two week stay with me that I had to come home with him at that time to explain to his wife why they weren't going to Costa Rica, why they're coming to Africa now. Uh, they ended up in Eswatini. And that's not too terribly far from here. We get together very regularly. We go do fun trips, do game drives and camping, and stuff like that together, and just tour around. Um, we enjoy each other's fellowship. And again, that's somebody that, that uh, I rely on. Closer to that, um, I have, I think, the best directors in the world. It's two organizations, a World Aware Incorporated in the US and a World Aware South Africa. And so they have different boards. But there's not a day that goes by that somebody from my board doesn't call me and say, Michael, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Or are you doing okay today? Can we encourage you somehow? Do you need something prayed for? Um, every day I get, get some kind of a comment from my directors and talk with them. Uh, my, my directors are differently active in different things, but they're all very, very interested and active in some way in the organization. That's really encouraging to me. Uh, and then I have two host families here that take me in and let me just come and be nothing in their house. Uh, although I'm, you know, the uncle and the grandpa and things like that to the kids, but uh, these are people that I have very close fellowship, very close relationships with. And it's a place where I can go just to, to be myself uh, and can be uh, that person when you need the confessor. You know what I'm talking about, gentlemen. You just need somebody to hear out your thoughts. Sometimes uh, that's who these people are for me. And they've been there every time I've needed them. So that's how I keep going. That's uh, I keep
2: going. <clears throat> Michael, quick follow up. What do you do for physical fitness? Not to put you on the spot. If you don't do anything, that's cool. But if you do do something, I want to know about it.
1: I live in the bush, man. I walk everywhere.
2: <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so yeah, So I you get in 10,000 10, steps here, a day.
1: Well. An elliptical right over here for the, the times when I don't feel like getting outside. But uh, seriously, just, you know, the living in the bush, it's really exciting to be here. Um, you see the picture in my backdrop there. That's not my kitchen window. There's a giraffe that walk through that picture and other wild animals out here, too. Um, I get out, I walk. Uh, photography is a hobby of mine. I love photographing birds, so I get outside and taking care of uh, that itch. And uh, yeah, I find plenty of things to amuse myself. And most of it's outdoors. And with kids, at the crash. You don't get a chance to sit down there. <laughs> um, the, the group that I had last week, I took them to a couple of the crashes here in town because it was part of their assignments. The first crash we went to we had 95 kids in it. And every one of them stormed the gate trying to get their hug from me. And then during that time, Uh, I'm doing the exercise routines with them, getting them warmed up for the lesson and stuff like that. So yeah, there's plenty to keep you moving around here, Michael, how long do you plan on staying? Uh, my wife says this way, she's pretty sure I'm going to die in the saddle. So my, my best, um, wishes would be that I spend the rest of my life here. I'm fine with that. Um, I love the people here. I love the work here. I've never been happier in my life. And I've been pretty happy most of my life. But uh, it really energizes me to see uh, the thing that motivates me, the, the thing that people didn't get when I worked for them in corporate America and so forth. What motivates me is to know the things I do really actually make a difference in somebody's life. And I'm not talking about their life here. I'm talking about their eternal life. You can see the change of heart that people have and the awakenings that they have, when you just really truly care for somebody, you make a difference.
2: Michael, thank you for that. Thank you for the example and uh, for the inspiration. Uh, Anybody else with any other questions for Michael?
0: Michael, could we get your email address in the chat? Maybe that's something I'll do here in case there is anyone that wants to connect with you.
1: Okay. Somebody tell me how to do that.
0: part. I'll do it. I'll do it. I can do it. I'm going to do it for you.
1: Okay. That's great. That's great.
0: And I just really admire what you're doing and the way that you've given your life to Jesus. And, um, thanks for being here today to just connect this group of United States based pastors, uh, with what's going on, uh, in the world of ministry on a whole continent really far away from where they are. So thanks for help keeping them grounded and connected and, and all you church leaders in the United States, if you're looking for a ministry to support or to hear stories from or to be connected with in some way that is in South Africa, then I strongly encourage you to reach out to our friend Michael. Can we just spend some time praying for Michael and his ministry before we go? Um, can I get a few volunteers to that might want to do that? Maybe if two people want to.
1: Sure, I'll
0: pray. Okay, Dennis, great. Yep, Dennis, pray for us. You please.
1: need somebody else. I'm not, nope, I'm not real good at this. You
0: are fabulous you are very good at okay.
1: this All right. Our gracious heavenly Father uh, thank you for Michael and and God just thank you for his heart. Lord, it's always impressive to hear people's testimonies and how you bring us to where you want us when we're not aware ourselves. God I just pray your your protection, your provision for Michael his wife, his daughter son-in-law god that as he continues to walk faithfully that the blessings will be a garden that grows up around him and thank you for that dedication god just uh just bless him with what he needs give him a little extra for love thank you jesus
2: amen